Hi friends, Justin Hibbert here. Just before we get to episode 60, which, wow, episode 60, it's hard to believe. Can I ask a huge favor? If you've been blessed by this podcast, if you've learned something from it, if this has been helpful to you, would you do me a huge favor and become a patron? It's just $5 a month. It's the cost of a cup of coffee at Starbucks. So just imagine you're treating me to a cup of coffee. If you want to give more, you can, but $5 is all I'm asking. This podcast has gotten some legs, which is exciting, but the bigger it grows, the more help that I need, and I need to pay my helpers. So if you would be so generous, you can support this podcast by going to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Oh yeah, patrons get a discount code for the Why Catholic shop on Etsy as well. Again, if you could spare $5 a month, I would be extremely grateful. God bless you. In the days, months, and even years after Jesus' ascension, the word Christian didn't exist. Christianity was called Aderech, which in Hebrew means the way. Christianity, or better said Aderech, was made up of all Jewish people, and so it wasn't thought of as a separate religion, but rather a Jewish sect. The earliest believers had no clue that Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, could also believe in Jesus, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit, and be saved. That all changed in Acts chapter 10, when a God-fearing centurion by the name of Cornelius believed in Jesus and was baptized by Peter. In fact, Peter and those with him were pretty amazed when they suddenly realized that God also intended to save the Gentiles. Peter going to Cornelius' house and ministering to him caused quite the scandal. In fact, the elders convened a meeting to discuss what would normally be highly inappropriate. Observant Jews did not enter the homes of Gentiles. They wanted Peter to explain his actions. After hearing Peter's testimony of the events, the elders also came to realize that salvation wasn't just a Jewish thing. Even Gentiles could be saved. Imagine that. What seems so obvious to us today was an absolutely foreign concept to the earliest believers. As Christianity spread through Asia Minor in Jewish and Gentile communities, it caused some growing pains. The context of the Messiah was Judaism, and so the Jewish believers wondered how anyone could embrace Jesus the Messiah without all that rich Jewish context. One of the most important rituals in Judaism is circumcision. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant God made with Abraham. How could one claim to follow God and not be circumcised? Yet all of a sudden, there were these uncircumcised Gentiles believing in Jesus and being baptized. This caused quite the discord. In fact, the debate over whether one needed to be circumcised to be saved was so divisive that it led to the First Council in church history. It's called the First Council of Jerusalem. While the Council of Jerusalem would rule that one did not need to be circumcised in order to be saved, the conflict between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians was far from over. There were numerous quarrels that arose in churches near and far. I'm sure the apostles often wondered how they were going to unify a rapidly growing church, a church made up of Jews and Gentiles across Palestine, Syria, Asia Minor, Greece, Rome, and beyond. How could such a diverse church obey Jesus' call to be one church? Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. Since episode 51, we've been focusing on the phrase from the Nicene Creed, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. In the last episode, we focused on Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed that his followers would be one just as he and the Father are one. We explored the type of unity Jesus desired for the church by looking at the relationship of the Trinity. Today, I want to address the question, how has the Catholic Church stayed unified? 
While there have been fractures and schisms over the centuries, most notably the Great Schism of 1054 and the Protestant Reformation of 1517, these divisions have not put an end to the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is still, by far, the largest and oldest institution in the world. Over 1.3 billion people across the world identify themselves as part of the Catholic Church. Compare that with the Eastern Orthodox Church, which has 220 million members. There are 110 million that claim to be Anglicans, but there's a variety of Anglican communities that are independent of each other. There are some 77 million Lutherans, but again, there's some 40 Lutheran denominations that are independent of each other, though they participate in the Lutheran World Federation. Baptists, which was my upbringing, have about 100 million members, but there are some 60 different independent Baptist denominations. The Catholic Church has an astounding 1.3 billion members, five times more than the next largest Christian sect. Not only that, it's the oldest, nearly 2,000 years old. The Catholic Church is not a monolith either. There are a number of different Catholic rites. It extends beyond national borders. It's made up of different language speakers. It's comprised of various orders. Its members have differing political views. It's a very diverse church. And we'll explore that diversity in a couple of upcoming episodes. But unlike many Protestant groups that are confined to national borders, there's only one Catholic Church. It's not the Catholic Church in America. It's not the Catholic Church of Rome. It's just the Catholic Church. It's truly a universal church. So what's the Catholic Church's secret? How has it remained unified, sometimes despite itself? The answer is that the church has a unity of faith, a unity of cult, and a unity of charity. In his book, Figuring Out the Church, which I've linked to in the show notes, Father Aidan Nichols expresses the Catholic Church's unity this way, a creedal bond, a liturgical bond, and a social bond. Let's start with the unity of faith, or the creedal bond. When we think of the word creedal, we might think of specific creeds, such as the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. But being a creedal community is much more than that. To have unity of faith is first to trust that the Holy Spirit is at the helm of the church. The church's beliefs are not man-made, but God-breathed. The church's beliefs are not a matter of private revelation, but revealed to the entire community. Let's consider the first council of Jerusalem that met to decide on the issue of circumcision, which we read about in Acts 15. The elders debated and discussed the issue and finally came to a decision. They then disseminated that decision by sending delegates with a letter that they had crafted. Listen to what the letter says, quote, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from unchastity. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. End quote. Notice what they said. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Their majority decision wasn't just a human decision, it was the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Consider the first Council of Nicaea, which met in 325 AD, to debate and decide on Arius' teaching that Jesus was made by the Father and was neither co-eternal nor consubstantial with the Father. At the council, the bishops listened to both sides of the issue, and after debate, prayer, and deliberation, they decided that Jesus was indeed co-eternal and consubstantial with the Father. Arius' teaching was condemned as heresy. When we say the Nicene Creed, we are professing what the bishops professed some 1,700 years before. Jesus is, quote, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him, all things were made, end quote. Why do we believe this? In fact, why do most Christian sects believe this? 
It's not only because the biblical evidence is abundantly clear, particularly the first chapter of the Gospel of John, nor is it merely because the overwhelming majority voted against Arius' definition of Jesus, but it's also because we believe the Holy Spirit was the guiding force for that council. So when we proclaim the Nicene Creed, we affirm both the Holy Spirit's role in guiding the church, as well as the authority he gave the church in the office of the bishops. Thus, we can trust the collective bishops of the church because we ultimately trust the Holy Spirit. The bishops didn't just give us creeds. We have various council decisions, declarations, and of course, a catechism. The other day, I was reading some comments by a social media acquaintance. She was going on and on about what she believed about a particular theological concept. She claims to be a Christian. She had nothing to point to as the basis for her opinion outside of her opinion. This was what she believed based on her particular reasoning. As Catholics, we collectively point to the catechism as a statement of beliefs compiled by the magisterium throughout history. We can say, this is right or this is wrong, not because it's what I personally believe, but because it's what the collective church, which is guided by the Holy Spirit, believes. Like I said before, the Catholic Church is not a monolith. There are lots of people that disagree with the church. For example, there are quite a number of people that claim to be Catholic but disagree with the church on the doctrine of the Eucharist, something Father Gray and I discussed in episode 54. Some people promote abortion. Some think the church's position on birth control is absurd. Certainly there is a place for discussion and debate, but when one thumbs their nose at the church's teaching, they put themselves above the community and ultimately above the Holy Spirit. In submitting to the church authority, even when we don't understand or may even disagree, we help perpetuate the unity of the church. Secondly, let's discuss unity of cult or liturgical bond. By the way, the word cult here is not being used nefariously. It's being used in its original meaning as a system of religious veneration. At the core of the Catholic liturgical bond are the sacraments, which we discussed extensively between episodes 3 through 42. We all enter the church through the same means, baptism. We receive the Holy Spirit through confirmation. We dine at the same table when we partake of the Eucharist. In confession, we recognize that we are no better than anyone else, and we humble ourselves and ask for God's forgiveness. We are all in need of God's grace and mercy, and the sacraments are the conduit by which we receive God's grace. This is why the sacraments are core to Catholicism. When we think of the word liturgy, we also think about the way we worship. Every Mass, no matter what rite, which we'll talk about later, follows a similar pattern. It can be broken down into two parts, the Liturgy of the Word, where Scripture is read and taught, and the Liturgy of the Eucharist, which is the sacrifice of the Mass. The purpose of Mass is sacrifice. Just as sacrifice was the key element of worship in Judaism, so it's the key element of Christian worship. The Mass culminates in the Eucharist. If there is no Eucharist, there is no Mass. From 600 to the 1960s, the Mass was almost completely uniform, at least in one rite of the Catholic Church, again a topic for another day. It was uniform not only in process, but also in language, Latin to be specific. In my Protestant circles, people accused the Catholic Church of maintaining the Latin Mass for nefarious reasons, like they were trying to keep the congregation from understanding what was going on. No, that wasn't it at all. The purpose was to protect the unity of the Church. No matter where you went in the world, no matter who was leading Mass, Mass would have been the same. The same form, the same language, the same substance. Though Mass is mainly celebrated today in the vernacular, and with some slight variations, it is still fairly uniform. When I travel either domestically or internationally, I love to attend Mass, and I never feel out of place. 
Last fall, I celebrated Mass in the crypt of the beautiful Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. That particular Mass was celebrated in Catalan, which I don't speak. And even though it was celebrated in a foreign language, it was all so familiar. While I don't know the exact words in Catalan, I was able to follow along in English. In addition, for the most part, the Church follows the same liturgical calendar. That liturgical calendar marks specific holy days and feast days. A calendar is key to unity. Just like every country and culture comes together to celebrate specific events on specific days, so too does the Catholic Church. As part of that unifying calendar, the Church has specific readings and prayers each day as well. When we go to Mass, whether on Sunday or a weekday, we're reading and discussing the same passages of Scripture as other Catholics around the world. When we pray the Liturgy of the Hours, we're reciting the same prayers as our Catholic brothers and sisters around the world. Finally, let's discuss the unity of charity or social bonding. Father Aidan Nichols breaks social bonding into two categories, charity of service and charity of communion. Regarding charity of service, Father Nichols says, quote, The church's unity may be described as a network of mutually assisting agencies at all levels. These run from the Pope articulating doctrine in the worldwide church to an ordinary parishioner going to visit another because the latter is sick, end quote. The charity of communion not only includes the public gatherings of church members, but also the communion of saints, which I talked about in episode 52. When I became convinced of the Eucharist, I knew that I would either end up being Eastern Orthodox or Catholic. What stood out to me is the charity of service in the Catholic Church that was lacking, I felt, in the Eastern Orthodox communion. The Catholic Church, particularly because of its hierarchical structure, is able to promote unity in a way that would be stifled by the political challenges of the Eastern Orthodox churches. I'll explain what I mean by this in a couple of episodes from now, but the gist is is that the Catholic Church is able to incorporate Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, and Episcopalian churches into full communion if they would like, and they become part of the Catholic Church. This unity of charity has also brought the church to a place where it is the most charitable organization in the world. As Brandon Vogt details in his book, Why I'm Catholic and You Should Be Too, which I've linked to in the show notes, the Catholic Church feeds more people, teaches more people, heals more people, and houses more people than any other institution in the world. Whether it's international charity organizations like Catholic Relief Services or Knights of Columbus or Catholic hospitals or ministries to the homeless like Christ in the City, the Catholic Church's unity enables its charity and its charity promotes its unity. If you listen to episode 54, you heard Father Gray talk about the plans for a Eucharistic rally for the Diocese of Salt Lake City. We canceled Mass at the local churches and had one giant Mass at a convention center. In addition, there were guest speakers and hands-on activities for the kids. Considering the last such gathering was back in the 1970s, this was a once-in-a-generation event. It was quite the undertaking. I've worked for a couple of global organizations. To create unity, there's all sorts of branding, company emails, all-hands meetings, and even in-person events. The Catholic Church doesn't do close to what I've seen other corporations do to build a sense of community and unity. I think that's a testament to the Holy Spirit's role in the church. You know, there's a number of groups, such as Seventh-day Adventists and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that believe in this thing called the Great Apostasy. Basically, after the last of the original apostles died, the church went completely off the rails. Well, I never called it the Great Apostasy. I believe that around the time of Constantine, the church lost the plot. But here's the thing. Jesus told his followers that he would be with them through the end of the ages. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus told Peter, quote, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it, end quote. Some versions say the gates of hell will not overcome it. 
So if the Catholic Church is the church that Jesus started, then to suggest that at some point, whether 100 AD, 350, 1500, it went apostate, seems to question the legitimacy of Jesus' promises and the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not suggesting that the church is perfect and has always had perfect leaders. For sure, that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm saying that if God withdrew his apostolic blessing from the Catholic Church, then how does the church continue to exist? How does it continue to thrive despite schisms and scandals and being a global institution of over 1.3 billion people? Furthermore, if Protestant denominations finally figured out the truth in the last 500 years, why are they splintering left and right across geographical, racial, and social lines. If the Catholic Church is so apostate, how is it that she manages to maintain a unity of 1.3 billion across the entire globe? Just before his arrest, Jesus prayed that his followers would be one as he and the Father are one, something we talked about in the last episode. Then he promised his followers the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we can expect that one of the primary prerogatives of the Holy Spirit is to protect and preserve the unity of the church, and he has guided the magisterium towards building a creedal bond, a liturgical bond, and a social bond for the last 2,000 years. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.